Please take your Bibles and turn with me this morning to 2 Timothy chapter 3. Title of the sermon, The Last Days, which was our title last week, A Call for Moral Courage. Last week we devoted our efforts and study to considering the characteristics of the perilous times that, we, that would come to define the last days. We established in our study the interpretive context for those last days, recognizing that by biblical definition, the last days would seem to have begun either, we could say, with Jesus' ministry, as Hebrews 1 implies, or perhaps more specifically, as we see uh, Peter mention in Acts chapter 2, connecting to Joel uh, the, around the time of Pentecost, and the falling of the Holy Spirit upon those there on that day. And we saw that the last days having begun in that time would then continue until the establishment of Christ's kingdom. And these times that Paul spoke of, these perilous last days, would be characterized or to a more or lesser degree throughout the ebb and flow of history by carnality, by sensuality, and more and more ungodliness. But also... As we saw toward the end of our time last week in verse 5 of 2 Timothy um, chapter 3, by a form of godliness, a framework or a veneer of godliness, but which operates completely in absence of the power of the Spirit of God. And in taking time to describe the condition of these perilous last days, Paul then calls upon Timothy to identify the marks of this degeneration and to turn from them. From such, Paul said... Turn away. Now we pick up very much in context this morning as we continue within the text. And more specifically, what we're going to do, what we're going to see this morning, uh, is not just the nature of the last days, but we're going to begin to transition into particular focus upon this form of godliness, and even perhaps more specifically so, upon those who would espouse this form of godliness that, that, that denies the power of God, this absent form of godliness, this vain form of godliness. And the true warning here is about these representatives of this false worship system as we continue who will characterize the, the perilous last days. These are they who utterly misunderstand the nature of the spiritual. They falsely misrepresent the God of heaven as they seek to understand him through the lens of spiritual or philosophical or academic means, but means that are wholly disconnected from the spirit of God and the spirit of truth. And today's message is going to transition us from the broader characteristics of the perilous last days, specifically to these more specific elements of the religious nature of those last days. And Paul is going to make clear that as long as there are good men with the moral courage to stand for truth and to speak for truth, the efforts and the deceits and the confusions of these corrupt and reprobate men and these corrupt and rep reprobate systems will have no quarter within which to flourish unopposed. Paul will warn us in chapter 4 of a time when people will no longer heed sound doctrine, and we know from the prophetic promise that these days will surely come. But by God's grace, the call is that it would not be because God's people lack the clarity and the resolve to speak the truth, but only because of the natural and inevitable spiritual attrition that will lead us into the final days of judgment. So this morning we pick up within our context, speaking of the character of the last days, and I'm going to go back to verse 5, 
to seat us back in our context, and then we'll continue from there. So the text tells us in verse 5 of 2 Timothy chapter 3, having a form of godliness, but denying the power thereof from such turn away. For of this sort are they which creep into houses and lead captive silly women laden with sins, led away with diverse lusts. As Paul continues his description of the men and, and the character of this time, he transitions, as I've mentioned, from a broad description of characteristics from, being, uh, from, from a, a group or a culture that, that are lovers of their own selves, from having uh, uh, um, this, this sensuality under which they operate to this form of godliness which denies the power of God and then specifically to being of a certain sort, of the sort which creep into houses and lead captive silly women. Now to this end, we might understand Paul to be describing here not simply all of society in general, but a subset of the last day's society which regards this spiritual, uh, this deep spirituality but has no power of God. That though the whole of society, little doubt, will be characterized by the nature of what we studied last week in verses 2 through 4. Yet it will also be that there will be a subset of the religious, of those who would aspire to represent godliness in some form, but that this form of godliness will be distinctively carnal, claiming to follow the true and living God while being wholly conformed to the lusts and desires of the world around them. And it will be justifiable within the scope of that form of godliness. And so these are they who live in this powerless religious ideal, this powerless spirituality. And it carries with it particular characteristics, this powerless form of godliness. The first being seen here in verse 6, that of this sort, the sort that have this form of godliness but deny the power thereof, are they which creep into houses and lead captive silly women laden with sins, being led away with, with, with lusts, diverse lusts. Paul describes here a manipulative and a sensual form of religion. Uh, Jude warned in Jude uh, about those that have crept in unawares, right? And the idea of those that have crept in unawares is that they have through deceit, they have through uh, um, a measure of hypocrisy and this wolf in sheep's clothing veneer stepped into a system where people are, are genuine and where people are seeking unto a measure of truth and they are subverting that truth from underneath. They are using their elements of hypocrisy and the lies and, and um, uh, uh, glowing words to subvert the hearers. A very similar idea that we find here a religious zeal which exists to prey upon the sensibilities of those who are completely dominated by their sinful impulses. Those who maybe want out, those who recognize the, the, the weakness of their own flesh, those who understand there's something missing and who are eager to look for something missing and they prey upon those sensibilities. And they can find in this carnal religious sensibility some sort of absolution of their sin, uh, some uh, uh, not... not not power over their sin, but a release from their conscience as it relates to their sin, whereby they're not redeemed from their fleshly lusts, nor are they asked necessarily to curb their fleshly lusts, but much to the rather, this form of powerless godliness, this counterfeit religious zeal, serves to channel their lusts into that false form of religious zeal itself, and so alleviate their conscience from the guilt of their sin by allowing them to engage in it fully. And this is not uncommon, especially among cults, is it? Where people are manipulated, 
into, and, and we think um, particularly among cults as it relates to this idea of silly women laden with sins, led away with diverse lusts, it's not uncommon, especially among cults, where women are manipulated into fulfilling the lustful desires of especially the cult leader, right? By clothing their sinful compulsions in a veneer of spirituality. Justifying illicit sexuality under the guise of a unique spiritual sanction. That there's some sort of spiritual and religious transcendence and justification for these diverse lusts. Based upon the false veneer of godliness of oftentimes the leader, but more or less the whole movement. Because the pseudo-godliness of this time and context has no power to overcome the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life, they must rather find the means by which to justify their incapacity to contain their own lusts within the scope of their theology. They have to find a way to show that they're not ungodly while simultaneously indulging their lusts because they have no power over them. And so these religious systems become nothing more than justifications for carnal impulses. And of course, this is not only evident among the cults, and by the way, it's not only evident among sexuality. The seeker-friendly church, the health and wealth church, this is a group of people who have found no power to curb their lusts as it relates to materialism, to their need for, for success in this world, and the church has found a way to accommodate their covetousness, to accommodate their greed, and actually turn that into a spiritual concept that says God is blessing you. So we see an example in verse 6 as it relates to, to sexuality, but we see that the veneer of godliness that denies the power goes well beyond just that single sin to where we see any number of religious groups, any number of religious systems, some, by the way, even very close to home, that have found ways to justify their own carnality through a false spirituality. So this is not only evident among the cults thus. The cults are perhaps the most easy or coherent framework to see it. But we see it among all walks of religious life. In every church movement, there are those men, those churches, those systems who use their authority and supposed biblical knowledge to cover, often to compel their own lusts or abuses. So we read of men abusing their power, their influence, their position to take advantage of women, uh, to get money, to, uh, to um, live a lavish lifestyle, whatever it might be, all in the name of spirituality, all in the name of Christ. And when we see this, Paul's teaching tells us to mark those who have this form of godliness but deny the power thereof. They seek unto and represent this notion of the spiritual, but they are operating in complete and essential denial of the essence of the Spirit of God. And do take note that this is not a form of godliness which is inexplicably lacking in power. It's a form of godliness which denies the power. It's not a form of godliness which says, well, we're trying our best. We don't understand why this isn't working. It's a form of godliness that says, no, 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 no. The power of God is in this, but this is what I want. So I'm going to find a way to justify what I want through a religious veneer. It's a denial of the power of God not just an inexplicable missing of the power of God. So then we find in verse 6 the result of this system of powerless godliness, of a form of godliness which must accommodate sin because it has no reference point to understand or spiritual power to overcome that sin. 
And then in verse 7, Paul describes how this deceit and this confusion is maintained. Ever learning, he says, and never able to come to a knowledge of the truth. Now take note that these characteristics, ever learning and never able to come to a knowledge of the truth, are, this is still describing the silly women laden with sins. Not the men who creep into houses unaware and lead these women captive. The Greek construction makes this fairly clear, whereas the English, it breaks down a little bit, although by proper English um, structure, that would be the right interpretation anyway. But it is these silly women who are being described as those who are led away by diverse lusts and the same silly women who are ever learning and never able to come to a knowledge of the truth. And just as we see the results of this powerless form of godliness in a complete indulgence of carnal lust, so too we see how it is that this form of godliness is justified. It is justified because these people are constantly being taught stuff. There's a constant flow of knowledge, a constant flow of learning, but none of that learning is substantive unto the truth. None of that learning is substantive unto the power of God. And again, this is something that is not uncommon in, in, in any religious circle where we could place this, and if you think specifically of the cults, it's not as if the cults are not coming together to learn a bunch of stuff. As a matter of fact, generally, the person who is leading that is a tremendous teacher and has a very unique perspective that people have gravitated toward. And he's very charismatic, and people constantly go away feeling like they've learned things, but they've not come to the knowledge of the truth. And this takes us right back to the warning of chapter two, does it not? Against subversive study and striving about words to no profit. You and I know well the capacity of a person to spend countless hours studying the Bible without even once lighting upon a topic that actually relates to truth. You and I know well the, the possibility of people who will read the Bible and come away with dramatic concepts and specific ideologies while completely missing the weightier matters of the law. Doing justice, loving mercy, walking humbly with thy God. You and I know well the, the copious number of books out there that are writing about biblical topics but have not even a kernel of actual value as it relates to drawing nigh unto God. Ever learning. But it's as if the truth just is elusive, never able to come to the knowledge of the truth. And so we see a picture of false religious systems wherein the leaders captivate the followers through a system of constant learning, but which brings them no knowledge of the truth and a general justification of lustful impulses due to the powerless nature of their form of godliness and religious zeal. And they can only validate their religious zeal and validate their godliness by justifying their carnality because there's no way they're going to find power over it because they don't have the power of God because they're ever learning, but never able to come to the knowledge of the truth. And whatever form of which Paul was warning in this passage, what was in his mind is unknown. What was the exact system that Paul was warning about here? Well, it bears good marks of Gnosticism, which was something that was growing in this day. We see it a little more particularly contended against in Colossians, but it's quite possible that it's a Gnostic idea, the idea of Gnosticism being a secret knowledge idea where you have to go through this particular group of people to find a, a subset of knowledge that is not revealed in any other way. One of the unique and glorious things about the Word of God is it's not hid from anyone. It's right here. It's accessible. You can pick it up and you can read it. You don't need me. Now, by God's grace, I help you. 
I hope I do. But you have the word, you have the same thing, you've got the same book I do, right? And all I'm doing is I'm walking through it verse by verse. You can do that too. We're not, we're not digging into some sort of secret knowledge here. This is the word of God that he has given unto us that you understand by the spirit of God who illuminates your heart. Then, then God has ordained teachers to help in that process, to guide, to pastor you, these sorts of things. It seems this system was particularly targeting women with this concept, as um, Timothy would reckon it here. Again, any number of cults who have done this, uh, they particularly prey upon women in a couple of different ways. One of them, of course, being uh, preying upon women as it relates to the indulgence of carnal lusts. But there's also another way in which women are often preyed upon uh, among spurious sets of uh, those religious systems that claim Christian orthodoxy but have a form of godliness denying the power thereof, whether it be preying upon women who have been degraded in society or, or preying upon women who are, are carried away with um, the romantic notions of, of the spiritual concept, or be it, as cults often do today, those that specifically target women and children, often while their husbands are at work, because the path of least resistance to getting them into the church is through the woman in the home. And then, of course, that's also the best way to proliferate those things into the next generation through the mother of the children. I uh, had this happen. I, I was fascinated by I have, I have a home office, but I tend not to come out of it during the day and got a, a, a doorbell that rang and my wife answered the door as she would do. And there was um, a, a, a representative group from a, um, I believe it was Jehovah's Witness uh, this particular time. And um, they engaged my wife, and um, they didn't engage her very much. It was a, uh, a couple of men there. Well, a couple of days later, it was a couple of women that knocked on the door, and they engaged her. And they, they very much sought to engage my wife. And she said, well, you know, you can come back when my husband's uh, available. And they weren't interested in that. They wanted to engage my wife. And I, as a husband, was put out by that a little bit. Why are they trying to go around me to reach my wife? Why are they specifically targeting my wife? Very similar concept to what we might see here. Even in our public school system, we see this framework, right? A system which is dominated by women and is reaching the generations to proliferate through the younger generations their system. And so we even see in the humanistic, the humanistic religious system an attempt to bring women and children into the fold specifically, bypassing, generally speaking, the men, as the public education system has done for a couple of generations now. Paul then connects these concepts to a historical element of this sort of cult false teaching in verse 8. He says, Now as Janus and Jambres withstood Moses, so do these also resist the truth. Men of corrupt minds reprobate concerning the faith. Paul speaks of two men here named Janus and Jambres who are said to have withstood Moses. Now the Bible does not speak to these two men, but they are present in other forms of Jewish history and Jewish tradition. Jewish tradition and history claims them to have been magicians in the court of Egypt who withstood Moses before Pharaoh. 
Various other tra traditions exist surrounding these men, uh, traditions uh, that, that oftentimes in Jewish history this happens where uh, the tradition, uh, the, the, the statements of, of um, traditional history tend to become embellished and flourished over time. Uh, some claim that they were among the mixed multitude that went out of Egypt. Some claim that they uh, became followers of Balaam, uh, as we would trace him in Numbers and then some even claim that he, they were the sons of Balaam, all of these bearing at least some marks of traditional overstatement and mystical romanticism surrounding the mysterious uh, statements uh, regarding these two men. Uh, none of that is neither here nor there because the point had nothing to do with these two men directly, but only that they, in the name of a, their religious system, were the highest ideals of representing God, representing God to Pharaoh, right? Janus and Jambres represented God. They were the priests. They represented God to Pharaoh. And they withstood Moses before Pharaoh and were seen to be operating a form of godliness that denied the power thereof, that denied the truth of God. If they were those who were truly connected to God in some way, they would have validated Moses' message. But though they claimed to be representatives of religious truth, they denied the truth. They denied the power. They resisted the truth. Men of corrupt minds and concerning any measure of biblical faith, they were reprobate. This description stands in stark contrast to the nature of the new birth, does it not? Whereby old things are passed away and all things are become new. Whereby we are crucified with Christ. Whereby our minds are renewed in the Holy Ghost. Nothing of this sort characterizes the religion of the perilous last days. There will be much religious fervor. There will be much spirituality throughout the, these, these last days, of course, beginning there in, in uh, the book of Acts and continuing to today and continuing to the, the, the kingdom. But as with the magicians of the court, in the court of Egypt, who it would seem were perhaps even world-renowned, Egypt being the great power of the day, perhaps world-renowned men, for their religious capacity, yet their system was a system in which corrupt minds were not resisted, nor reformed, nor regenerated. But those corrupt minds were designated to flourish within their system. A faithless form of powerless godliness will define more and more the last days. And we will see when we get to verse 13 that evil men and seducers will wax worse and worse. So what do we do? How are the people of God supposed to respond to such warnings. Verse 9. But they shall proceed no further, for their folly shall be manifest unto all men as theirs also was. We respond the same way Moses responded. Do you see the link? Their folly shall be manifest unto all men as theirs, that would be Janus and Jambres, was, also was. Moses stood up. He told the truth. He allowed the power of God to be manifest in him. And the light of the truth became the great disinfectant, shining into the darkness of their false veneer of godliness and exposing its impotence, allowing the illusion to proceed no further. By the time Israel walked out of Egypt, there was no question about where the power was. There was no question. And so is our call as well. I don't need to go on a rampaging crusade against a particular subset of powerless godliness 
There's an inbuilt mechanism within the scope of God's design to fundamentally halt the progression of these lies within society and in culture. Verses 10 and 11. But thou hast fully known my doctrine, manner of life, purpose, faith, long-suffering, charity, patience, persecutions, afflictions, which came unto me at Antioch, at Iconium, at Lystra, what persecutions I endured, but out of them all the Lord delivered me. Paul says, they shall go no further. Their folly shall be exposed as Janus and Jambres' was because you have known doctrine. You have known life. You have known purpose. You have known long-suffering. You have known charity. You've known patience. You've known persecution. You've known afflictions. You understand where the power of God lies. Live it. Tell it. Have the moral courage to stand upon the truth of God's word and shine it. Shine the gospel of life before the eyes and into the ears of all men. Living the truth, telling the truth, even when it means persecution, even when it means resistance. The only cure for error is truth, Christian. The only power that we have over error is truth, Christian. There have been any number of times in history where societies have banned, outlawed, and otherwise shut out various voices of error in their midst, expelling people from towns, from cities, from societies, in order to keep certain ideas, false or otherwise, from spreading. But you know, this only works to an extent. You can only go so far at banning thinking, at banning words. The most powerful way to ensure the preeminence of truth in our midst is not intrinsically to silence all dissenting voices, but rather to demonstrate the power of the truth and the impotence of those false claims. We do not have a powerless system. We don't stand on an even playing field with error. Error does not have the validation of truth. We have truth. We have that power. So we live it. We tell it. Paul does not present the false godliness of, this, of his day as being on an equal playing field to sound doctrine. It's a form of godliness, but it denies the power. See, but when Paul preached sound doctrine, when his manner of living and purpose and faith and long-suffering and charity and patience, when it was evident, when even in the midst of persecutions and afflictions, Paul's resolve was unwavering as it was in Antioch and Iconium and Lystra, where he was stoned, where he was thrown out of the city, where he was chased down, where he was rejected outright. And of course, he appeals to those cities from which Timothy, that, that was the region where Paul initially met Timothy, by the way. That's where Timothy came from, Lystra and Derby. When the truth continued to flourish in the midst of all of that persecution, in the midst of all of that rejection, in the midst of all of that error, when the truth bubbled up to the top because the truth has a power, the power of God is evident within it, and they don't have that power. No religious system or form of godliness can contend against that. Now, they can, like Janice and Jambres, reproduce it to a point. Recall in Exodus 7, Moses began doing wonders before Pharaoh and before the Egyptians. First thing he did is he cast his rod down and it became a serpent, right? You remember what the magicians did? We'll assume Janus and Jambres were among them. They cast their rods down. And guess what? 
they became serpents too, didn't they? Now, of course, Moses' rod ate theirs. Moses' serpent ate, ate their serpents, but, but, but they, they could reproduce that, couldn't they? And because of that, Pharaoh was not impressed. His magicians could do the same as Moses. How is, how is this God? Look, same power. Remember the next one then. Moses lifts up his rod and he smites the waters and they return to blood. And guess what? The magicians could do that one too. They did the same thing. They reproduced the same thing, the same power. So Pharaoh was not impressed. His representatives of God can do the same thing as Moses. Then in Exodus 8, Moses stretches forth his rod and causes frogs to come up out of the land. And guess what? The magicians did that too with their enchantments. So Pharaoh's not impressed because his magicians could do the same as Moses. Then Moses took his rod and he smote the dust of the earth and it became lice on man and beast. And the magicians attempted to bring forth lice, but they couldn't do it. And the magician said to Pharaoh in Exodus chapter 8, verse 19, this is the finger of God. Then came the flies. We see the magicians not even active in that incident. And then came the moraine upon cattle. Again, we hear nothing from those magicians. Then the boils break out upon man and beast. And Exodus chapter 9, verse 11 says, the magicians could not stand before Moses because of the boils. For the boil was upon the magicians and upon all the Egyptians. So by the time we get to the seventh manifestation of God's power, not only are the magicians impotent, but the magicians are powerless to even help themselves. It was not on the first manifestation of power that truth was differentiated from error. It was on the fourth. It took the fourth manifestation of power before the counterfeit was exposed. With the cults, with these false doctrines, with these veneers of godliness, with these false spiritualities, it's not always or necessarily even often that they don't have anything to commend them. Some of the most moral people in our country are a part of false religious systems. And those false religious systems, the morality that is within them is going to produce a measure of results. There's going to be a measure of results that come from the fact that they're aligning themselves with morality, right? Mormonism, Orthodox Judaism. And so we can't just explicitly look at one set of, uh, of, of the power of God, say moral success, and say, aha, see, this is the truth. Just like with Janus and Jambres, it took to the fourth sign before the counterfeit was exposed. That there is not some show of godliness, perhaps as Paul describes in Colossians chapter 2, verse 23, that there's not some sort of power or some sort of, of, of value in will worship and humility and neglecting of the body. We, we can't say that. Philosophy, uh, perhaps even to some degree, uh, the results of, of a philosophical way of looking at things. There is some results there. You go to philosophers that would seek to simply align with some Judeo-Christian ideals. Even some of our founders, right? A man like Thomas Jefferson or Benjamin Franklin recognized through the various elements of simply understanding a, a, a deity, of understanding Judeo-Christian morality, a measure of power. 
But there comes a point where the carnal must break down, where discipline can't get you any farther, but you're still lacking. There's still something missing. There is an element, a capacity within this, this powerless godliness to reproduce certain elements of biblical Christianity, certain elements of Christ, and so to be able to show on the surface level a, a to put up a fight. But it still bears no true power outside of that which man can conjure in himself out of that which Satan can impose in, in the context of the magicians. And the power of Christ is so much greater, so much deeper. And what that means is that we have to live Christ deeper than just the surface. Because if I'm just living Christ on the surface, if I'm just cleaning myself and coming here on a Sunday and living Christ on Sunday, and I go home and my neighbors see who I really am, well, those neighbors can look at plenty of other religious systems and say, there's no difference. But if I live Christ to my core, there will be an unavoidable, unreproducible, uncounterfeitable power, undeniable power. Only the believer is able to live in the power of God, to live the crucified life, to live in the joy and the hope of eternity, to manifest the fruit of the Spirit, even in the face of persecutions, even in the face of afflictions. Only the power of God and the preeminence of truth found in God's Word carries with it the true power to transform the hearts and minds of men, to relieve the conscience of its guilt, to instill true and lasting joy and to give man the power to live dead unto sin and alive unto Christ. Forms of godliness may reproduce various elements of, of the Christian experience through general morality, elements of empathy, flowery speeches rooted in grand theories of some uh, unknown righteousness that they're black box inferring because they, they don't know it. They can see it, but they don't understand it. They may seek to alleviate the conscience through misunderstanding of grace and godliness or through uh, imposing spirituality upon sensuality in order to relieve the conscience in that way. But everything that the unbelieving world, everything that the reprobate religious systems conjure up is little more than a spiritual, a system that, uh, of, of false spirituality attempting to counterfeit the power of God through false form of godliness. And it will always fail. It must always fail because it has no power but the power of discipline, the power of a narrative, and the power of numbers of people who have given into it. But the only way that error will possibly be exposed is when there are genuine believers living the truth to its depths, to its core. Powerlessness of Janus and Jambres were only evident, only evident because Moses stood up. Only evident because Moses got to the fourth sign, in fact. If he'd have stopped at three, Pharaoh would have said, this God is no more powerful than anyone. But Moses stood. He spoke the truth. He lived the truth. He obeyed God's word. He did what God told him. And the separation became more and more apparent with each manifestation of the power of God. 
the powerlessness of modern forms of godliness will only be exposed, Christian, when they can be contrasted in society with those who are living the truth of the power of the Spirit of God. Through doctrine, through manner of life, through our purpose, through our faith, through our long-suffering, through our charity, through our patience, even in the midst of persecutions and afflictions. And make no mistake, verse 12 tells us, yea, and all that will live godly in Christ Jesus shall suffer persecutions. Make no mistake, living a life of godliness will ask something of you. There will be a cost. The nature of this persecution changes in time and in circumstance. The persecution or suffering that we have historically experienced in the United States, for better or for worse, has been significantly less than the suffering throughout most of history and throughout most of the world. But the reality remains that those who live godly in Christ Jesus will have something that is asked of them. Be that suffering a measure of indignity or infamy, of shame or of pain, some loss, great or small. But this suffering is not in vain. In fact, it's a part of the system of affirmation. It's a part of the power. When once there is pushback, when once there is resistance, it is here that the counterfeit and the powerless forms of godliness give way. Either in that the, counterless and power, the counterfeit and powerless forms of godliness wither in the face of some measure of suffering or persecution, or in that that counterfeit and powerless form of godliness modifies itself and its operation to conform to culture and so avoids those things for which they would be persecuted. And this is what separates the sheep from the goats. The power of God through salvation stands sure in the face of suffering and becomes all the more evident in exclusivity and authenticity through it. And before we move off this point, let's make one more thing clear. The servant of the Lord does not go out looking for persecution and suffering. In fact, Paul explicitly states in Romans chapter 12, verse 18, if it be possible, as much as lieth in you, live peaceably with all men. Christians are not masochists. We do not seek out suffering. We do not seek out shame. We do not seek out indignity. We do not make ourselves purposefully odious to culture simply so that we can affirm our standing. But the call is that we not shy away from suffering either. That if the culture and context of life in which we live stands in contradiction to the truth of God's word, that those who rest in the power of God and whose hope is in God's word will not be surprised that they'll suffer some manner of shame or persecution or indignity when they must, by virtue of their love for God and the power of God that is within them, divert from culture. And much to the contrary, this will bring about an opportunity for the word of God and the truth of God to be magnified in them. And as time goes on from generation to generation, Paul states that these deceits are going to get worse and worse. And the call to live and to tell the truth will become more and more needful. So we read in verse 13, but evil men and seducers shall wax worse and worse, deceiving and being deceived. 
from generation to generation throughout the last days, Paul says, evil men and seducers shall wax worse and worse. Now take note, this is not necessarily a doomsday idea that things are just going to get impossibly and inevitably worse. And we know that this is not just a doomsday idea because we see the ebb and the flow of history showing that there are times where light has been more prevalent and darkness has thus fled to the corners of society to hide. And then there have been times where darkness has been more, more prevalent. The darkness comes out the, the, the inhibitions are dropped and, and darkness has its day. But what Paul is saying here is that things are going to be tending downward. An old saying says, history repeats itself. And that's not really true. Another saying, which I like significantly better, is history doesn't so much repeat itself as much as history rhymes. And I think this one's more accurate. It's not that we see the exact same circumstances play out a time and again. It's not that, as you would see in, in, in a graphic that I have here, history is not so much like the first graphic where circumstances repeat themselves in an endless loop. Same problems, same lessons, same solutions. We get nowhere. We're just doing this cycle. It's not so much a cycle. It's more like an inverted roller coaster, as it were, where each peak of evil is higher than the one before throughout culture, history, and time. So that the 20th century, uh, as we see it, has been a, a, a unique century. With each renewal of truth, the progress that evil makes stops short, but then it seems as though evil almost picks up right where it left off when it once the church becomes lazy or complacent. So the 20th century being the bloodiest century in the history of the world, as far as we can tell, compelled by the evil philosophies both of fascism and communism, which have seen a measure of freedom to flourish as never before in our societies. And as we trace this, we can kind of trace this rhythmic element of history. So the Roaring Twenties were a time of quite a bit of actual impropriety, a lot of sexual impropriety, a lot of evil, a lot of rebellion against morality. And that gave way to of course, the world wars, which kind of threw a kink in everything. And then you get the 40s and the 50s, which were a time of general morality. And that gave way then to the 60s and the 70s, which was a heightened form of the evil philosophies of the sexual improprieties of the 20s. It's almost as if the 60s and 70s left off or picked up where the 20s left off. And then that gave way to the 80s into the early aughts, which was a time of general morality. Not the strength of the morality of the 50s, but a reversal to a time of, of the religious right, the moral majority, all of those things, right? A generalized morality. And then, of course, in the early aughts, we have that in the, the mid-aughts, I guess, about right, right around 2008, right? Uh, where, where darkness began to have its day again. And it seemed as though darkness, generally speaking, picked up right around where it left off in the 60s and 70s and is now heightening again. This is that rhyming idea. We're seeing, we're seeing a cycle, but it's not necessarily the same cycle. It's an intensifying cycle. So these evil philosophies in the heightened form still have, for the last decade, made another strong push in our society, which will either eventually give way to another resurgence of truth, probably not quite as strong as the 90s and the early aughts, but there nonetheless, or... 
it'll peak into the days of judgment, right? Now, and then there have been other reset cycles in history, such as the Reformation and the Great Awakening, where what we would see on our little graph here is we'd actually see kind of a, a, a reduction where evil is actually pushed back because of the assimilation of righteousness in, in society through a true revival. We could see that as well. These are the ways history has ebbed and flowed. So when Paul says here, evil men and seducers shall wax worse and worse, deceiving and being deceived, he's not necessarily saying that it's just going to be a constant worse and worse and worse and worse every year, every day, every century. There will be an ebb and a flow, and I think history bears that out, but that we are also seeing a progressive evil that barring some sort of awakening or, or, or true uh, a societal awakening of sorts, a reformation or revival of sorts, will inevitably and eventually lead to judgment. And understanding this thus, it is not for us to become hopeless, is it? Or to live in a general or constant expectation of ill. It is not for us to throw up our hands and simply say, well, it's going to get worse and worse anyway. That's what the Bible says, because this is a simplistic and inaccurate view of times and seasons, of epochs of history, where any number of times we have seen those great restorations of righteousness which have stemmed the tide of evil, which have slowed the spread of unrighteousness, which have put, uh, in fact, evil back on its heels for generations at a time. But only rather we make it clear that history, as God has foreseen it, does not tend toward righteousness but away from righteousness until the inevitable day when Christ returns and establishes perpetual righteousness upon the earth. With each epoch of history, the deceivers wax worse and worse. And with each epoch in history, more and more fall under the deceptions of the powers of these deceits. And on a macro level, on a broad level, this is out of our hands. But this is not true on a micro level, on an individual level. It may be true that evil men and seducers will wax worse and worse, deceiving and being deceived. But this is not true about this day. This time and this age. It doesn't have to be true about today. It doesn't have to be true about this church. It doesn't have to be true about this city. It doesn't have to be true about this county. It does not have to be true about this county today. This day, I can win the loss to Christ, can I not? This day, I can stand strong against the deceivers and rescue the deceived today, can I not? This day may be a day of victory. This age may be an age of righteousness, unlike any the world has seen. Paul exhorts Timothy thus, verses 14 and 15, but continue thou in the things thou hast, which thou hast learned and hast been assured of, knowing of whom thou hast learned them, and that from a child... Thou hast known the Holy Scriptures, which are able to make thee wise unto salvation through faith which is in Christ Jesus. Today we stand. Today we continue in doctrine and in manner of life and in purpose and in faith and in longsuffering and in charity and in patience. Today we represent the truth of God's Word. Today is a day for moral courage, Christian. And that's the call. Evil men and seducers, they will wax worse and worse, deceiving and being deceived. Persecutions and afflictions are expected in those times when evil is having its day. We might expect them around the corner for us. But this day is a day where we can exhort 
one another that they shall proceed no further. This day is a day where we can proclaim that their folly shall be manifest unto all men. This, in this day, we can turn away such powerless veneers of godliness. In this day, we can call men out of darkness into Christ's marvelous light. In this day, we can pick up the torch from the generations which have gone before, and we can boldly carry it into the generations which are ahead. And why is it all so important? Why is it so important that we don't yield thus to subversive study so that I can continue in the things that I have learned and been assured of? Why is it so important that the servant of the Lord not strive, but be gentle unto all men, patient and apt to teach, so that I can reflect to the world the things that I have learned and been assured of? Why must I know the character of these perilous last days so that I can know the importance of continuing in these things that I have learned? Timothy had a legacy of godliness. We know that from 2 Timothy chapter 1, verse 5. He had a legacy forged uh, in the belief of his mother and of his grandmother. He had known the scriptures from a child. He had known for years the power of the scriptures to make one wise into salvation. And so too have many of we. There are, in a group like this, most likely some that have not come to accept Jesus Christ as their Savior, at the very least, many of our children. There are some who are first-generation Christians. You had no heritage in the faith growing up. But many more of you are multi-generational Christians. You have learned, you have grown, you have understood. You have seen the power of God from a young age. You have known the gospel, which makes you wise into salvation through faith, which is in Christ Jesus. And all of that preparation, all of that learning, all of the care that we, that, that we have, have had invested in us and that we've been investing in the next generation has brought us to today. And today is what we have. And we reside in this time in history where it is our privilege to continue in the things that we have learned. And it's more necessary, it's more evidently necessary today than it, than it has been for a long time. To turn away from the this, these veneers of godliness that deny the power thereof, to state with Paul that these philosophies that resist the truth, full of men of corrupt minds and reprobates concerning the faith, that they shall proceed no further, that they will make no inroads into me, they will make no inroads into my family, they will make no inroads into this church. Evil men and seducers shall wax worse and worse, but they have no power here. Their folly shall be manifest here. Their emptiness shall be manifest here. Their powerlessness will be exposed here. In my life, in my home, in my family, in my church. And I will live a godly life in Christ Jesus, knowing that they that will live godly in Christ Jesus shall suffer persecution. There will be a cost. I will count the cost but I will live in the power of God regardless. I will continue in the things that I have learned. And so today, Paul calls upon Timothy to be constant, to be determined, and so too do we. Find a call for moral courage in these times of evil, in these times of deceit, in these times of confusion. We live in one of those times, Christian. Now is not the time to hide your light under a bushel. 
Now is not the time to be proliferating your hypocrisy. Now is not the time to lack the courage of your convictions. Now is not the time to lack a fundamental awareness of circumstances. Now is not the time to be unskilled in the word of God. Now is the time to study, not for study's sake, but so that we can show ourselves approved. Now is the time to instruct, not to strive, not to fight, not to argue, but to patiently instruct those who oppose themselves if God, peradventure, will give them repentance to the acknowledgement of the truth. Now is the time to continue in the things which we have learned, to bolster those things which we have learned, to live in them, to live them out, to proudly, openly, unabashedly show whom we follow. Be ready to stand in the evil day. Be determined that error will proceed no further in our sphere of influence and be confident in the scriptures that are able to make us wise into salvation. And may God help it to be so in our midst. Let's close in prayer. Father, I pray for God's people. Help us to be a courageous people. Not courageous in ourselves, but strong in the Lord and in the power of his might. That we, knowing the truth that undergirds our walk, would stand upon that truth, unashamed, ready to give answers, having studied to show ourselves approved, not striving, but eager and ready, apt to teach. Help us to represent the light in the way that we live. Help us to represent the light in the way that we talk. Help us to represent the light in where we go and what we do. Help us to represent you in doctrine, in manner of life, in purpose, in faith, in long-suffering, in charity, in patience, even in the midst of persecutions, even in the midst of afflictions. May you find in us a bulwark against error so that folly will proceed no further, so that the folly lands flat at the doors of, our, of this church, the doors of our homes, at the threshold of our lives, and is exposed for what it is. May you be pleased in your people this morning. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to Pastor Jamin Wickler from Legacy Baptist Church in Buffalo, Minnesota. More information about Legacy Baptist Church and a library of sermons are available at www.legacybaptistchurch.net.